0: Hi and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's Economics Podcast. Every week we take data and we use it to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York.
1: Hi, Adam. Hi Kim.
0: So this week's episode happens to overlap with Valentine's Day, so we thought we'd use that as an opportunity to start a new series on the economics of love. So for the next several weeks, we're gonna be spending part of every show talking about romantic relationships from an economic perspective. And we thought we'd start this week with the place that most romantic relationships tend to start, and that is with dating, specifically with dating apps. The data point there is 39, 39%. That is the share of all heterosexual couples who now report having met their partner online. That makes online, including dating apps, the most popular single method of meeting a romantic partner, more popular than all the traditional avenues, whether through family, friends, at a bar, through work, church, in the neighborhood, etc. It's online dating that has surpassed them all. And actually, that means heterosexual couples are only now catching up to same-sex couples. 65% of same-sex couples say they met their partner online, so they've been ahead of the curve. All this adds up to dating apps being in the center of our national romantic life. So, we thought we'd dig in.
2: Today, there are hundreds of sites and apps. It's gone from taboo to the thing to do. But what impact is this having on society? We may have become easier to meet, but we are not any easier to love.
0: How have dating apps changed dating and relationships?
2: Oh my goodness, I think they have changed them dramatically. Um...
0: So Adam, just to generally address the topic of dating, when I was thinking about this, it struck me that as a concept, dating has a kind of inherently market-based logic in in some ways. I mean, the idea, right, is that you're comparison shopping in some sense. And maybe I thought that could be put into relief by comparing dating with non-market methods of of courtship. So do you have any sense of how courtship worked outside of dating? I mean, and if anything, what does that clarify about kind of the distinctiveness of dating as an institution?
1: Yeah, this was a really provocative uh, question I mean, I think to sort of end up with the dating app shopping model, you need kind of three things to happen. I mean, first of all, you need shopping to become a phenomenon. You know, historically speaking, that's a novelty and really a phenomenon of commercial society so-called. And we have histories of that which go back to the 17th and 18th century. But interestingly, that shopping phenomenon coincides in the West with the emergence of romantic notions of love so there's kind of a tension here if you think about you know so so Bridgerton or um, uh, or, you know more realistically like Jane Austen novels you you see there the emergence of consumer society a constant preoccupation with new dresses and so on but on the other hand also a, a, a deep preoccupation with the notion of romantic love which rather cuts against that so that's That's one, but that sets one dynamic in motion. And then I think the next thing you need is the emergence of dating as a process. I mean, dating, after all, is not the same as courting. It's this sort of space in between. And I I guess one would have to say that dating in its modern sense is is a kind of even later development, late 19th century, probably really classically 20th century development. And then the third element to really get you into the modern scene would be the really quite radical... Disinhibition of of, social, of sexual mores and the opening of the world of heterosexual sexuality to norms of sexuality which are you know probably prefigured by the gay cruising scene essentially so a much more casual approach to hookups and if you you know if you add all those three things together I think you do then end up in the world of the modern dating app. And I, 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 to be honest, I've never used one, and frankly, mm. hope never to have to. But I did. I was recently. I was allowed recently to look over the shoulder of a much younger member of our family, and uh, I mean, it was it was absolutely shocking to somebody who mm. you know never really seen the inside of one of these apps before. I mean the the exactly as you say, the analogy between the swiping and the scrolling through options on the dating apps and online shopping was just, I mean, it was absolutely inescapable. It was completely extraordinary. And it was really just like picking music or something from Spotify. And it was all the more so because the algorithm is clearly quite well trained to select for this member of my family, very similar looking people. And so the whole thing had about it a bit more like it was, you know, it was like checking out various models of a stand mixer or a beard trimmer or something on Amazon and you were offered various features of the same thing. You know, did you prefer it in this coloration or with this feature? I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. And I think at that level, totally inescapable that it does indeed conform very closely at at a certain level, at least, to... As you're saying, a kind of shopping approach to the world.
0: Yeah, so perhaps uh, I should also clarify that both Adam and I have never, <laughs> never used dating apps. Uh, I also, uh, my relationship with my wife goes back before I even had a smartphone uh, of any kind. So that's just a a kind of, I guess, buyer beware here, or maybe our alienation from this will be clarifying for for some people because uh, it's, it's certainly at some. We're approaching the topic at, from from some remove, so maybe that'll be even more clarifying. But yeah, as I as I also dug into this, it, it I came across several references to dating as taking place in, in in what the economist Alvin Roth called a matching market. And this is a type of market for which Roth, together with another economist Lloyd Shapley, won a Nobel Prize specifically for their work on on developing algorithms to optimize these kinds of matching markets. So I was curious if you could explain what a matching market is, what makes that distinctive, and how exactly does that apply to dating? I mean, how does the work that they did and won a Nobel Prize for apply in terms of, I guess, reducing the inefficiencies of dating? I mean, what exactly is the thinking here?
1: So matching markets are interesting because they go beyond the abstraction of demand and supply, which implies, as it were, a homogenous commodity, which you either Want or don't want and compare with other homogenous commodities. So, you know, apples, for instance, you don't, you know, when you go in and buy an apple, generally speaking, unless you're some extraordinary foodie person, you just pick a bag of apples or pick an apple off a rack, right? You don't spend a great deal of time thinking about whether or not the particular apple you pick is the right one for you. Whereas large numbers of very important markets, including, for instance, the labor market, are matching markets in the sense that an employer is looking for some very particular attributes in an employee and likewise an employee is looking for particular attributes in an employer and what you do therefore is to try and figure out the best match and that's core to the entire operation of the market and so the question then is how you efficiently arrange markets like that so as to move you know out of a situation which could result in really painfully inefficient. Consequences, And there are a lot of complicated algorithms for deciding how you should order the process through which one or other player in the market makes their selections. But dating, since we're talking about dating, adds another dimension to this because commonly in matching models, it's a question of shifting from a state of being single to a state of being married. And the question really is, can you pick the right person? Whereas dating adds an element of what you might call learning. So, in the first type of model, it's simply searching, sifting through an imaginary pool of people. It's that original process of deciding, is this a possible match? And then you have to decide whether to go for it or not. Whereas dating adds, you know, what makes perfect sense, of course, a process by which you can get to know the other person. And that um, it's as though you could, as it were, you know, take a job for a temporary period and decide whether or not it's a good fit for both sides. And this induces. All sorts of really quite complicated trade-offs because, and this is a familiar problem to to anyone involved in modern relationships, because nowadays, in a sense, marriage can be thought of as an extended dating period, because at some point, of course, you can terminate it with divorce if things get bad and you decide it isn't a good you isn't a good fit. But in a sense, you're caught in these fundamental dilemmas of how long you stay within a relationship before the learning process you're engaged in reveals to you that you might be better off. In another relationship, and there is huge potential for error and inefficiency in a market of that type. Overall, you know, most analyses of matching markets tend to suggest that people don't do enough searching. And so dating is certainly one way of introducing more learning to that process. There are also some rather interesting studies now about the differential effects of technologies on different groups in the population, depending on how they affect two different things. A, the cost of finding new people you potentially might date, and B, the cost of learning about the person once you've decided to embark on a dating process. And the two effects have very different implications for the market, because if technology enhances people's ability to find new partners, the basic matching process, it will tend to make people pickier particularly people who think of themselves as high-value targets in this kind of market. Whereas technologies that reduce the cost of learning for instance the social stigma to dating originally will tend to cause people to search in a you know in a more open ended way because the original match is less important than what you may discover through the process of dating a person so these are all of them deviations from any simple market they are co- complications which mean that the simple predictions of economists about the the efficiency the uniqueness and the stability of equilibrium are quite fundamentally compromised and they are a move, as it were, from the abstractions therefore, of certain pure theory towards a more realistic understanding, notably of how labour markets work, but also marriage markets. And that's why I think they've attracted as much attention they have. The, a- mm. the predictions of these are, are somewhat ambiguous, however, and indeterminate. In other words, it depends very much then on the specific properties that you add to the learning process, how you imagine people gain the information. And that's changing all the time with new technologies.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, because I was going to say, this shouldn't be a surprise. But uh, I guess that when it comes to this kind of economic research, there's not sort of clear, immediate takeaways that can be applied to uh, one's life in, in terms of dating. I mean, it seems like th- these are sort of research sounds sort of broadly illuminating about the sort of situation one is in when when dating, but it's not like you can kind of derive clear uh, instructions or lessons for dating from the work yeah it's not Alvin management
1: Roth. consultancy for yeah
0: for singles <laughs> exactly <no.
1: laughs> i know i know. but but you know there's so much of the kind
0: but, of pop literature out there that always kinds of is like oh well you know there's this nobel prize winning economics, economics research literature. all you got to do is x y and yeah, z yeah, 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 yeah. um but yeah i guess life doesn't work that way but we're talking so much about these apps and, and that got me wondering about what Exactly, is the business model of these apps? And again, I'm professing my own ignorance here, I, I, but it seems to me most of these apps, I mean, there are so many of them these days, and they're free to download, uh, first of all. So I'm like, how do they even make money? And then it got me wondering whether there's even a kind of paradox at work in, in how these work, because isn't it their interest to kind of keep you in short relationships? and thus to can keep you continuing to return to the app, even as they're promising you sort of successful relationships and sort of on the path towards marriage, which seems to be the presumption of what some people want out of dating?
1: Well, I think the, the free layer is, the, is for losers, I think. I mean, I think that <laughs> okay. the, talking they're... to, certainly talking to this younger relative, What are you calling what are you? You don't rely entirely on the free layer. You pay, you pay a premium subscription to get to get uh, better matches or these various sort of um, power swipes that you can do, which which secure uh, more attention for you, I can see what you mean about this incompatibility between you know a, a dating app which promises a route to you know married bliss and sustained business. But I mean, first of all, you could say is this paradox real? I mean, you you know on that basis, you could say that fee paying colleges that extract fees from students would would have you know, an incentive to never to allow them to graduate. I mean, we would just keep hmm. them in an endless cycle of failed exams and coaxing them to offer us another term's worth of fees. I mean, we don't do that, right? Because, the, hmm. because the, the business model relies on successive cohorts of new people coming through who will also need education. And that could be one way of resolving this paradox. I mean, the other and far more obvious one is to say that the idea that dating apps are about conveying you to the state of married bliss is really a kind of polite fiction, and mm. uh, in many ways, the, the protein, the the origin of many of the most active dating apps, is, is really just hookups, right? They're they really just heterosexual transfers of the of the flourishing online gay hookup culture, you know, of which the flagship is 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 Grindr, um, mm. and in the uh, Chinese world, it's Blued. And those two are the kind of powerhouse, uh, you know, uh, um, of uh, of more sexually orientated online dating apps. And people have done a huge amount of research on these. And the other reason that people pay and go on these is basically just they're kind of you know titillating social media. They're, they're mm. basically you know Facebook with all of the pretence removed, and they are basically just a way of entertaining yourself maybe boosting your ego if you're in the right bracket in some cases notably in the in the gay scene they're they're quite explicitly marketed as social media plus sex right they are social networking essentially so it's only really from a rather t- relatively conservative heterosexual cons- assumption about where sex fits
0: mm. in
1: people's socializing that there's any real contradiction here i mean if you assume that as it were people are going to date and then they're going to become monogamously married and the app is to convey you from one state to the other then indeed there is a problem but if that is not how sex functions in your social scene then having recourse to this it's a bit like uber basically or, or you know food delivery services sometimes you need to get off and this is how you do it using this app um so to that extent they're quite resilient models and you know for what it's worth they work i mean so far you know, they're really relatively short histories, but I mean, Tinder has $800 million per quarter in revenue, that's sales, and it has very high profit margins of about 25%. So it's bringing in about $200 million per quarter in profit. So they work as as business models. I mean, just to follow up here, it, it
0: does seem important what you're saying or, or worth underscoring. I mean, if there is a kind of social function, if dating has this kind of like social function, you know, in in terms of traditionally, in terms of kind of playing a role in eventual family formation and in terms of heterosexual uh, relationships. And this function is being outsourced to these apps that are kind of designed to foreground basically sex rather than other outcomes of relationships. I mean, it seems like if it's sort of structured in this way to privilege with kind of one outcome over another... It does seem like that's something that that should be surfaced uh, um, rather than kind of just sort of be submerged in the background of these apps.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the the one question would be, you know, what is the relationship between, you know, if if these apps create this sort of more open sexual erotic space? The question is maybe how it relates to online pornography as a Mm. phenomenon in society which uh, you know is all pervasive at least Mm. all of the data show this and is a sort of the masturbatory equivalent of the of the you know the real experience the much more high risk experience that can be provided by by dating apps so I mean there's no doubt I think though that internet has to that extent really opened the boundaries of erotic and sexual um, you know experience. There
0: is the possibility of some of the economics of pornography, I'm sure. Um, I'm not sure it fits in with the economics of love series, but uh, maybe eventually we'll we'll get around to that. Okay, we'll take a break here and be right back to continue talking about dating apps. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball. I, you know, not literally, but you know, figuratively, in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., And uh, I've been called out a few times, no, I've been more than a few times, Uh, pretty regularly I'm called out by this coach in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me, and I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain, and and, and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet, instead I carry it around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, Maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small, What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash, ones, twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. Again, to just dig a bit more into dating apps, it seems like, in economic terms, they set up what's referred to as a game theoretical situation. When two people meet on an app or encounter one another, you only have a certain amount of information about the other and you kind of have to assess and size up and make a decision on the basis of the kind of existing rules and the the available information. Yeah, I guess that got me wondering from an economic perspective, what would what would be a game theoretical approach to using these apps? There's all sorts of <laughs> application of game theory to, you know, uh, uh, the politics of nuclear weapons and, and you know, how to kind of signal to the other side what your intentions are, how to read the, the signaling of the other side. How, how does all of that kind of game theory
1: research apply to dating, if at all? Well, I mean, I guess you could have the kind of economics of signaling, right? So... So, I mean, maybe that's the function of, you know, something like the naked selfie. I mean, you know, it's a kind of pre-commitment device. Um, you know, you're, you're saying, "I'm you know, are you serious about this sex business? Yes, I absolutely am here, this serious. So there's a sort of, there's a kind of, um, you know, commitment function. Again, speaking to this very savvy, very tech savvy younger member of my family who's a regular on these on these apps, like he had an entire theory, apparently he'd even been involved in, you know, um, in telephone calls with the people that run the the algorithms of the apps. And he was saying that essentially Tinder in particular was using an ELO style system, which is the ranking system that chess uses, where and you can sort of see why, right? Because in you rank a chess player by who they've played and whether they win or they lose. And so to win would be to attract a swipe from somebody that you've matched with, and to lose would be to get the wrong sort of swipe, right? It's the left swipe rather than the right swipe. And so the aim of... And and the as in chess, you get, you get a higher score for beating a player who's beat more other players. And likewise, I gather in the Tinder app, for a while at least, you got a higher score depending on the person that did right swipe you. If they were themselves highly right swiped, then you would get more, you know, more status from this. And that changed the the way in which your profile was served out in the system. And so, you know, this young relative of mine had an entire you know, entire tactical system worked out for who you swiped and who you didn't swipe and what risk you were taking when you swiped a certain way with a certain person and where you should swipe and why you should, you know, VPN style, never swipe in a locality that you weren't going to spend any time in because it would reduce your score. And, like And It was this whole thing. I mean, I've now wow. subsequently done some reading on this. Wow. And it appears that Tinder now entirely denies that it uses the ELO system. So this information may be... Just apocryphal, or, you know, a kind of like the street rumor on how you manipulate Tinder, or, you know, just, I mean, from his profile, he's doing just, you know, it's certainly by his own lights, I gather, you know, he's very really pleased with the results the algorithm is serving up to him. But um, I'm not sure whether, whether this is, I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from the podcast, you know, to go away and spend a lot of time researching ELO systems, ELO systems to figure out how to improve their their tinder game um but i think everyone playing this system is that's another element of why perhaps it's less like shopping and more like market behavior because it's really a kind of bargaining with the app Hmm. you're not just a price taker in a way you're actually after all or maybe like you know the weird way in which you leave recommendations on uber or 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 airbnb Hmm. or something like that there's this sort of you know slightly kind of standoff kind of quality between you and the provider Fascinating.
0: Wait, is this, is one score actually pr- uh, uh, visible? Is that how this works? No, 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 oh, okay. no, no, it's no, like, no, no. I don't no. think it's not,
1: I it's not directly visible. As far, I mean, but again, this okay. reveals our ignorance. How do we know, Cameron? We should probably yeah. go find out. But, I was going. Uh, that's that's how this is going to
0: end. Is that I'm going to I'm going to this is all <laughs> fascinating. But I, I, blame it on I, me. I, I'm going to bring my wife in on this later uh, tonight when she comes home. I'll see. I, I have to see these, and I actually have to to start using them somehow but but I, yeah <laughs> no um,
1: this is a bad idea stop it yeah I, <laughs> um,
0: anyway uh, uh yeah. i guess to have a final question i'm just curious if there's data from these dating apps and that themselves reveal preferences for what we are looking for what people are looking for in their dating lives in their romantic partners can we take that data sort of at face value or does it work the other way around? I mean, are the apps steering us themselves to want certain things in that
1: context? I mean, I don't think there's any doubt at all that the apps steer you towards the criteria that they allow you to specify. So a picture, so they, they steer you towards, you know, selecting people on the basis of appearance and some of them allow you to specify basics about education and some of them allow you to specify quite a lot about education. And so we do have, you know, information and some analysis on on what emerges from this. And I mean, it's frankly, slightly kind of Darwinian feeling in that there are substantially more men on the apps than there are women on virtually all of the apps, I think. And the evidence seems to be that women overwhelmingly gravitate to the minority of best looking and best educated men, which means... But one end that women are competing very hard for a small number of men and on the other hand a large number of men get no swipes at all and so it's a you know it's a pretty brutal kind of system which leaves large numbers of people both women and men unhappy because women you know undue, unduly large numbers of women end up competing for the same small number of men and large numbers of men who fall outside whatever the criteria are of attractiveness or education, um, basically have a very you know, borderline kind of humiliating experience, oh. uh, and do it anyway because you know it's fun presumably, or it's entertaining, or maybe they relish with the degradation. Mm. But um, that's at least the story that I've been able to gather. And people may have, you know, it'd be interesting to know whether we get lots of feedback on this episode from listeners who tell us we've got it all wrong. But that broadly speaking corresponds to the, you know, vicarious experience of these apps that I've had with, you know, lovely friends who've had a really bad time on these apps. And um, it just kind of makes you wonder why anyone really would allow them, submit themselves to this kind of rather peculiar selection process, rather than just trying to get to know people in the ordinary old ways.
0: And to clarify, I mean, it sounds like this, so this is structured in a way that emphasizes the inequalities and it almost sounds like you're saying that there's a certain group of men that are actually the most privileged they are yes, the real I winners of these acts
1: yeah yeah i think there's a certain group of men who emerge as the of the winners of this process which you know again has a historical i mean the same is said after all about the so-called sexual liberation movement of the late 60s and 1970s which was that a particular group of adventurous men got to have far more sex mm. than they ever had before with more women um there were other effects as well but but there is this gendered inequality in which alpha males somehow emerge perhaps not mm. entirely coincidentally as, as as the key players that that's the you know but this is a this is a very one-sided
0: this yeah. is... <laughs> I, I just
1: noticed the apps
0: don't don't market themselves this way they don't they don't yeah. say like come yeah, yeah. one and all and submit yourselves to the dominance the natural dominance of of I'm men. not sure it's natural. Um, no, I
1: wouldn't go yeah. natural. It's just <laughs> like,
0: you know. <laughs> anyway, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Well, exactly. Even even worse. Come, come, come. Submit yourself to 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 uh, to the men that we decide. <laughs> Rank ordering. No, no yeah. It's
1: worse than that. The men that you will decide. That you like, will it, decide. You, yeah. will. you will. You will. will make us. sure it's you, do you decide. No, no, yeah, no. It's yeah. not. There's not. It's it's more that. It's more that in the in the anonymity provided by the app, right? a certain set of selection processes play out. They don't I'm not sure it's an effect of mm. manipulation. It's just if you reduce the criteria to these two and then give people mm. you know a secret ballot mm. essentially, which is what these apps do, this is the process that that gets enacted.
0: All right, well, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we will leave this Enjoy getting to know the partner yeah, that exactly. you're enjoying the anyone, day with. Anyone else who's getting ready for your, your, your big date, good luck. Uh, and you did this yourself. That's what Adam's saying. All right, we will leave it there for now. Uh, we will continue talking about love and the economics of love in, in the weeks ahead, but uh, we'll leave it here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at OnesandTwosPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.
2: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window, and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
0: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
2: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
0: You wanna make it tasteful, you wanna make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual, you thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
2: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.